Nicaragua is days away from holding an election that the U.S. government calls a sham. President Daniel Ortega is seeking a fourth consecutive term and silencing the opposition before the first vote is cast. Daniel Ortega betrayed the Sandinista revolution many years ago. Okay, and this has been an alert that the Nicaraguan progressives have been giving for many years. Everyone that you know from the 1980s, anyone that's famous, has already turned against him because they can see that he is not a progressive, is not left-wing, and right now he's gone full-on dictator the same way that Somoza was. It's really hard to, to see where um, Julio is coming from when you have 74 percent of the electorate in Nicaragua voting for Ortega, and you have all these social uplift programs and the safety and this economic growth that is even recognized by the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, the Nicaraguan people are not unsatisfied with uh, the Ortega uh, administration. Uh, they are very happy with the Ortega administration, and I think the elections, um, you know, are a testament to that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the Energy of Empire series. In this episode, we're going to look at the Central American country of Nicaragua. At the time I'm recording this, Daniel Ortega has recently been returned as Nicaragua's president for his fourth term, with the United States calling the election fraudulent and threatening further sanctions. Whilst this is a commonly held opinion, you also heard in the opening clips a dissenting voice from the political left proposing that Ortega is a hero fighting US imperialism. How did we get to this situation? To understand, we'll have to go back to 1908. After centuries of Spanish rule, and a brief period as part of the United Provinces of Central America, Nicaragua became an independent country in 1838, with the British Empire maintaining a presence on its eastern coast. An American pirate, called William Walker, took over the country for a brief period in the 1850s, invading with an army of privateers and declaring himself president. It didn't end well. At the turn of the 20th century, Jose Santos Celaya was president and enjoyed good relations with the United States. It looked like Nicaragua would be the home of the canal that ended up in Panama. This seems counterintuitive, given the relative width of the two countries, but Nicaragua's terrain was more suitable and a large lake cut down on the necessary size. Indeed, the country may become home to such a canal yet, with the Chinese currently involved in a project there. Panama's choice as the location did not diminish the strategic importance of Nicaragua. On the contrary, it heightened it. It now became imperative to ensure Nicaragua, backed by a European power, did not construct an alternative to the United States Canal in Panama. Zelaya had unified the Nicaraguan nation, getting the British to withdraw from their eastern ports. This caused a vacuum that American business interests sought to fill, with companies purchasing exclusive logging and mining agreements. When some of these companies inevitably fell out with the government, they went to the US State Department seeking help. During the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, who seemed to like Zelaya, these complaints fell on deaf ears. They found greater reception during the seceding administration of William Howard Taft, Taft was not an ideological imperialist the way Roosevelt had been. A bit like Grover Cleveland, he was influenced by American business interests and willing to take action abroad to support them. Taft's Secretary of State, Philander Knox, 
had been a corporate lawyer and represented the Lelouz and Los Angeles Mining Company. It held a gold mining concession in Nicaragua that Zelaya was threatening to revoke. Another American businessman who got into conflict with Zelaya was lumber merchant George Emery. Emery violated the terms of his agreement by neglecting to build a railway line or replenish the trees he was cutting down. When the State Department protested on his behalf, Zelaya settled the matter amicably, revoking the concession and compensating Emery. Zelaya then committed the sin of borrowing money from European banks to finance a railroad project, an action totally unacceptable to the United States government. Philander Knox initiated a propaganda campaign in the media to turn Americans against Zelaya by painting him as a medieval despot, to quote President Taft. American businessmen then orchestrated a revolution, declaring provincial governor General Juan José Estrada to be the new president. They funded a militia which unsuccessfully marched on the capital of Manuga. Just to be in the case a generation before, with the privateer William Walker seeking glory in Nicaragua, the revolution also attracted mercenaries from the United States. Two of these mercenaries, Leroy Cannon and Leonard Gross, were captured after attempting to blow up a ship full of Nicaraguan soldiers. They were duly executed by firing squad. Secretary of State Knox seized this incident to paint Slyre as a war criminal, issuing a legal opinion that because Estrada's rebellion had given his men the stature of belligerents, Cannon and Groves should have been entitled to prisoner of war status. He then attempted to convince the governments of Guatemala, El Salvador and Costa Rica to invade and topple Zelaya, with no success. The United States then broke relations with the Nicaraguan government and assembled marines in Panama, the first use of that country as an overseas staging area to project imperial power. Unable to negotiate, Zelaya resigned and went into exile. In his farewell speech, he said he hoped his departure would produce peace and, above all, the suspension of hostility shown by the United States, to which I wish to give no pretext that will allow it to continue intervening in any way in the destiny of this country. The United States now moved to block the Nicaraguan government from putting down the rebellion. They employed the same tactic that had been used in Hawaii 27 years earlier, forbidding the Nicaraguan soldiers from firing on the rebels for fear they might hit American civilians. US warships then deployed marines to enforce this order. Incidentally, their commander was Major Smentley Butler, who would later go on to pen the famous anti-imperialist tract, War is a Racket. He there described himself as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers, a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Equally unable to negotiate, the new president, José Madrid, also resigned and followed Zelaya into exile. This allowed General Estrada to march unopposed on Manuga, establishing himself as president. The New York Times reported that, On that day began the American rule of Nicaragua, political and economic. New York banking houses lent Nicaragua $15 million and took over the country's customs agencies to guarantee repayment. By 1912, Americans were also running the country's national bank, steamship line, and railway. President Estrada was, understandably, unpopular and forced to resign in 1912. His replacement, Vice President Alfaro Diaz, wasn't much of an improvement. He had been the chief accountant of the Lelouz Mining Corporation and was accused of selling out the country to New York bankers. 
A rebellion broke out, leading to hundreds of US Marines occupying the country to protect America's growing business interests there. This direct occupation would last for over 20 years. A full civil war broke out in 1926. This is when liberal commander Augusto Cesar Sandino rose to prominence. Sandino raised a guerrilla army which, combined with the Great Depression, forced the US out of the country in 1933. Prior to departing, US forces established a Nicaraguan National Guard, a combined military and police force designed to be loyal to US interests. It was led by Anastasio Somoza, who had close ties to the US government. A peace agreement was reached with Sandino, leading him to become one of the three rulers of the country. Somoza then had Sandino assassinated and massacred his followers, including their children. By 1937, Somoza had taken full control of Nicaragua and ruled until 1956 when he was shot by a poet. His sons then ruled until the revolution in 1979. To give a sense of what this rule was like, I'll play a clip from the John Pilger documentary, Nicaragua, A Nation's Right to Survive. There was a calypso sung in American nightclubs in the 1940s that began like this. A guy asked the dictator if he had any farms. The dictator said he had only one. It was Nicaragua. Anastasio Somoza founded a dynasty that ran Nicaragua like a family business for 44 years. The Somozas owned almost half of all the arable land in Nicaragua. They controlled the coffee, sugar and beef industries. Nothing was overlooked. They owned the national airline outright. If you bought a Mercedes car, you bought it from a Somoza company. Even the paving stones in the streets were made by a Somoza cement factory, which got the contract from a Somoza ministry and of course the profits went to El Presidente. The Somosas were protected by a private army called the National Guard, which the United States created, paid and armed. Somosa called them his boys and they tortured almost as a sport. This is the Messiah volcano, which as you can see is very much alive. One of the delights of Somosa's boys was to drop his opponents from helicopters into the volcano. The official American attitude to Somoza was best summed up by President Roosevelt. That guy, he said, may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. The first Somoza began his career as a sewerage inspector and went on to own the sewers of Nicaragua, right up to the manhole covers. This is the remains of another Somoza interest after the Sandinistas had got through with it a notorious blood factory known as the House of Dracula, to which poor Nicaraguans would sell their blood for as little as a dollar a litre in order to buy food. The blood would then be sold to the United States for ten times that amount. In 1972, an earthquake devastated the capital city of Managua, killing over 10,000 people and leaving 50,000 homeless. The National Guard embezzled much of the international aid that flowed into the country, while Somoza gave reconstruction contracts to family and friends, profiting from the quake and increasing his control of the country. This corruption signalled the beginning of the end for the Somoza dynasty. People who no longer had anything else to lose swelled the ranks of the opposition Sandinista National Liberation Front. The group who took their name from Augusto Caesar Sandino, 
had formed over the previous ten years as part of the independence movement sweeping the world at that time. After Sandinista guerrillas took government officials hostage, killing one along with his three guards in the process, Somoza declared martial law. The National Guard began to raise villages and massacre civilians suspected of supporting the rebels. Human rights groups condemned the actions, but US President Gerald Ford refused to break the alliance. The country tipped into full-scale civil war with the 1978 murder of Pedro Chamorro, a journalist who had been critical of the regime. Ironically, a businessman who Chamorro had criticised was later tried and convicted in Absentina for the murder, so it might not actually have been Somoza behind it. There was a particular incident where a National Guardsman was caught on camera cold-bloodedly executing ABC journalist Bill Stewart. This, combined with Somoza's general brutality and increasing loss of control of the country, caused the Carter administration to withdraw military aid. When Somoza fled the country, he offered a book called Nicaragua Betrayed. It's surprisingly hard to get a copy of, so I haven't read it, but from what I can ascertain, Somoza blamed Jimmy Carter for his downfall, along with a US State Department he believed to be packed full of closeted communists. This narrative was picked up upon by right-wing conspiracists in the United States, who believe in a Moscow-centred communist octopus spreading its tentacles across the globe. It found a place on their shelves next to similar apologetic efforts about Iran's Reza Pahlavi Shah and Chile's Augusto Pinochet. In reality, the Carter administration did not welcome the left-wing Sandinistas coming into power. Carter authorised covert CIA support for the press and labour unions in Nicaragua in an attempt to create a moderate alternative to them. The US wanted to keep some element of Somoza's wider political party involved in government and keep the National Guard, Somoza's instrument of torture and murder, intact. When the Sandinistas did win out, Carter authorised the CIA to provide support to their opponents. This was nothing, however, as compared to what was to come after Ronald Reagan was elected president. Reagan threw US support behind the counter-revolutionaries, or Contras, composed of ex-members of the National Guard. Let's listen to some clips from the frontline documentary, War in Nicaragua, describing how the Contras acted. They are our brothers, these freedom fighters, and we owe them our help. You know the truth about them. You know who they're fighting and why. They are the moral equal of our founding fathers and the brave men and women of the French resistance. We cannot turn away from them. No evil is inevitable unless we make it so. We cannot have the United States walk away from one of the greatest moral challenges in post-war history. We will fight on. We'll win this struggle for peace. Thank you for inviting me. Viva Nicaragua Libra. Thank you and God bless you. Just six weeks after his inaugural, on March 9, 1981, President Reagan signs a secret directive. Nicaragua is declared a threat to El Salvador and ultimately to the United States. On authority of the president's signature, the CIA sends its operatives into the field. In the countries on Nicaragua's borders, small rebel armies have formed, financed by wealthy exiles and composed largely of veterans of Somoza's dreaded National Guard. The CIA will secretly organize among the scattered groups. 
attempting to unify them into one opposition force to confront the Sandinistas. The war is fought in places like this, Miraflores, a mountaintop cooperative in northern Nicaragua. Here, when they are planting beans or working the cornfields, one peasant must always stand guard. From the cover of mountain mists, the Contras often attack. When the Contras came, the women were confused and afraid and thought that they were our own people. One of the Contras looked into a window in the house where the women were hiding. He probably thought that the guards were inside, so he threw a grenade through the window. He killed five people altogether, including two children and a teacher. The child who died was my son and the teacher my sister. Within six months, by the summer of 1982, the nature of this war is clear. The proxy army does not confront the Sandinista army in open battles. Its targets are mostly peasant villages. They took them away. They took our men away, all of them. They took them by force. They took them with their hands tied behind them and a rifle right here. Oh, you're crying, the Contra said. We'll give you something to cry about. My baby was in the nursery, and the one who was taking care of her was wounded. And when they tried to kill her, they killed the baby. That's the worst part of what they're doing, killing innocent children who don't know anything. How can anyone believe they're committing these horrible crimes here? Burning our farmlands, killing our children, killing our friends. In Washington, this is called low-intensity warfare. It is quite different from the way the U.S. fought in Vietnam. The targets of the attacks include rural health clinics, schools, and farm cooperatives. Nicaragua now recognizes it is at war with the United States. Although there are no American soldiers in the field and no declaration of war by the U.S. Congress. Nicaragua and its army cannot be allowed to win. So the CIA escalates the war, taking a direct role in the aggression. From a mothership off the coast, the agency conducts its own attacks. As detailed in this classified CIA document, dozens of sabotage missions are launched by the agency's own employees, a special force of Latin mercenaries. They are called unilaterally controlled Latino assets. The missions were always controlled by the CIA. Those of us who fought, who were, so to speak, the cannon fodder, were Honduran. But we were controlled by the gringos. They gave us the orders. We were at their disposal. While the mercenaries blow up refineries and mine harbors, U.S. pilots fly back up, firing on Sandinista positions. We sabotage harbors, refineries, shipyards, bridges. 
We never use our own uniforms. We use uh, contra uniforms so that the foreign press will think the contrast were doing all the work and the Americans could walk away with their hands clean. I've come across conspiracy theorists who claim the world's elite put coded messages in their public speeches, that their true intent emerges when you interpret their statements differently. With that in mind, it's interesting to hear Ronald Reagan say, No evil is inevitable unless we make it so. Did he mean that he intended to create evil? Or did he truly suppose that sponsoring death squads was a just and noble thing? Or maybe such questions are simply of no interest to him whatsoever, and he just knows what his audience needs to hear. I'm honestly not sure which of these possibilities is the most disturbing. Let's look at some of the effects of the US war in Nicaragua. These examples are taken from William Bloom's book, Killing Hope. Nicaragua was excluded from the US government programs which promote American investment and trade. This led to sugar imports being slashed by 90%. Washington pressured such organizations as the International Monetary Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the World Bank to withhold loans from Nicaragua. They opposed a loan to aid Nicaraguan fishermen on the grounds that the country did not have adequate fuel for their boats. At the same time, CIA-sponsored saboteurs were busy blowing up a major Nicaraguan fuel depot. CIA operations emanating in Honduras also blew up oil pipelines, mined the waters off oil-unloading ports, and threatened to blow up any approaching oil tankers. At least seven foreign ships were damaged by the mines, including a Soviet tanker with five crewmen reported to be badly injured. Nicaragua's ports were under siege, mortar shelling from high-speed boats, as well as aerial bombardment and rocket and machine gun attacks, were designed to blockade Nicaragua's exports, as well as to starve the country off imports by frightening away foreign shipping. In October of 1983, ESSO announced that its tankers would no longer carry crude oil to Nicaragua from Mexico, the country's leading supplier. Another prime target was agriculture. Raids by Contras caused extensive damage to crops and demolished tobacco-drying barns, grain silos and irrigation projects. Roads, bridges and trucks were destroyed to prevent produce from being moved. Numerous state farms and cooperatives were incapacitated and the harvest was prevented. Other farms had to be abandoned because of the danger of attack. The Standard Fruit Company suspended all its banana operations in Nicaragua and the marketing of its fruit in the United States. The American multinational, after a century of enriching itself in the country, left behind the uncertainty of employment for some 4,000 workers and approximately 6 million cases of bananas to harvest with neither transport nor market. Nicaragua's fishing industry suffered from lack of fuel for its boats. In addition, the fishing fleet was decimated by mines and attacks. Its trawlers idled for want of spare parts due to the US credit blockade. The country lost millions of dollars from reduced shrimp exports. The CIA actually produced a manual entitled Psychological Operations in Guerrilla Warfare, which advocated for such activities as political assassination, blackmailing ordinary citizens, mob violence, kidnapping, and the blowing up of public buildings. Nicaragua won a case against the United States in the International Court of Justice in 1986, 
the U.S. was ordered to pay the country $12 billion in reparations for waging war against it. Rather than do this, the United States simply withdrew its acceptance of the court and refused to pay. It argued that Cuba and the Soviet Union had committed the same violations against Nicaraguan sovereignty by providing training and ammunition to the Sandinistas against the Somoza regime. This was true, but not exactly a defence. When the United States Congress did eventually refuse to provide military support to the Contras, the Reagan administration worked around this by having other nations supply them. They also raised funds by orchestrating a covert deal of selling weapons to Iran, engaged in a war with US-backed Iraq at the time. The Iran-Contra affair, as it became known, was exposed and became one of the biggest scandals ever to rock a US administration. Further funding was acquired by facilitating the Contras flying cocaine into the United States. This coincides with the 1980s crack epidemic. It's such a big topic, I'll have to cover it and wider narco-imperialism another time. Just to say, it does bring in the Clinton family, as a lot of the cocaine was coming through an airstrip in MENA, Arkansas, when Bill was governor there. The Sandinistas took over a country devastated by a revolutionary war. Nicaragua was played with malnutrition, disease, and pesticide contaminations. Lake Managua was considered dead because of the decades of pesticide runoff, chemical pollution from lakeside factories, and untreated sewage. Soil erosion and dust storms were also a problem due to extensive deforestation. In spite of this, the Sandinistas received international recognition for gains in healthcare, education, the development of unions, and land and environmental reforms. A ceasefire was ultimately reached for the Contras in 1988, coupled with an effort to reintegrate them into society. General elections were held in 1990, in which there was a shock victory for the National Opposition Union, with Violeta Camorro, the wife of murdered journalist Pedro Camorro, becoming president. Whilst the Sandinistas had not been full-blown communists, they repossessed Somoza's farmland, but then distributed it to peasants to manage, this is in contrast to the centrally planned state farms of Cuba, for example, they had certainly engaged in less than helpful central planning. Not everyone felt like a winner in the new Nicaragua. Whilst this was a factor in their electoral defeat, the central fact remains that no country could sustain the economic and military warfare waged against it by the world's superpower. In spite of the ceasefire of the Contras being signed, the United States' economic embargo remained. Nicaraguans felt the war would never end while Sandinistas remained in power. It is perhaps also a factor that the US invaded Panama just two months prior to the election. It's hard to think this wouldn't have influenced Nicaraguans not wanting to see such a humanitarian intervention in their own country. Sure enough, the US embargo was lifted one month after the electoral defeat. This led to 16 years of what's described as centre-right rule where a lot of the nationalised industries were privatised again. Then in 2006, Sandinista Daniel Ortega returned to the presidency, where he remains to this day. This is where things become challenging to decipher. Ortega is denounced across the media spectrum as an oppressive dictator. He stands accused of abolishing term limits, centralising power, frauding elections, and enacting massive violence, leading to hundreds of deaths, against protesters. It seems like a classic case of power corrupting and a man becoming that which he once thought against. On the other hand, there are left-wing journalists who point to Ortega's overwhelming popularity 
and blame the violence of recent years not on the regime, but rather a re-emergence of the US-backed Contras. Given the history of the country, who could not at least take these claims seriously? And that brings us back to the start, where I played a clip from a Democracy Now! debate between Julio Martinez Ellsberg and Camilo Mejia, each adopting a completely contrasting opinion on what's going on in Nicaragua today. Having laid out the historical context that's necessary to understand this situation, I'll return to an exploration of current events in a future episode. Thanks for listening. For the more historical information in this episode, I've drawn on Stephen Kinzer's book, Overthrow. Kinzer lived in Nicaragua throughout the 1980s, and his book, Blood of Brothers, gives what I would think of as quite a balanced view, documenting both the violence of the Contras, as well as the failings of the Sandinista regime. William Bloom's book, Killing Hope, is the most thorough explanation of the violence and dirty tricks campaign waged against Nicaragua. I've also used clips from John Pilger's documentary, Nicaragua, A Nation's Right to Survive, and the frontline documentary, War on Nicaragua. Next time will be the final episode in Season 1 of this series, where I'll look at imperial machinations in Nicaragua's neighbour, Honduras. Thanks again for listening. Sangre de Vivian.